0: There is a longing within all of us for freedom, to get out in the open, away from the noise and fears and burdens that hold us captive, to breathe deeply and hear clearly, and to know that we are alive, created in the image of God. Our Creator God wants to meet with us, to bring us into greater freedom, to bring us to places where we can be still and know that He is God. As with all things worthwhile, there is a practice and a rhythm to this meeting. Transformation takes time, it takes effort, his work, but the most enjoyable type of work. The practices of our spiritual life anchor us and carry us forward. They center us as we navigate the storms of life. When we journey into the great expanse of God's love for us, we are transformed by the rhythms. Oh,
1: His grace.
2: Good morning. Nice to be with you and to renew a number of old friendships here and to make some new ones. As you are doing this uh, summer series on some of the spiritual disciplines... We're going to be focusing on the whole theme of silence and solitude before God. And I just returned from our cottage a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that I noticed here is that there is a sailboat. Uh, it's very still and it's very quiet when you're out on the water. When you're running around hauling people water skiing, it's a totally different perspective. But sailing has a very meditative perspective concept about it, and it's wonderful to sometimes go down to the harbor and to see all the sailboats out on a beautiful sunny day and just kind of gliding along, and you can hear the wind and you hear the waves, and you don't have to make an awful lot of noise. In our culture, we live in a very, very noisy world, and even as we live in the broader expanses of the GTA we become so much aware of that noise, and that's why a lot of people love to get away during part of the summer, just to be able to be out in the country, to see creation in, through different lenses, and to be able to just kind of slow it down a lot. A number of years ago, when I was studying in California, my mentor was the dean of the School of Psychology where I was studying, and he came up with a term that diagnosed a new type of illness. At that time, I was feeling perfectly well, uh, but then I realized that I, too, had this illness. His name was Dr. Archibald Hart. He was the dean of the School of Psychology at Fuller Seminary, and he diagnosed this illness, as a psychologist, as the hurry-up sickness. Hurry up. Now, for those of you who might be type A type personalities, you will begin to grasp a little bit about what this is all about. It's an illness that somehow takes hold of people because we are always in a hurry. In fact, we will buy anything that almost promises us to be able to speed up the pace of our life in ways that maybe we had not even anticipated. The best-selling shampoos, went to the very top of the market because they did one thing. They combined shampoo and conditioner in one bottle. So you cut out time in the process. Domino's Pizza became number one in the nation because they promised to deliver their product to you within 30 minutes or less, and you would get a free pizza. I have two sons. At that time, they were teenagers, and they decided to try out their luck. So they phoned up Domino's Pizza, and uh, then they put the clock on this poor delivery guy. And we could see him rushing up the street, and they were standing out there with their wristwatches on as he drove into the driveway five minutes late. He got out of the car, didn't say a word except, I know, the pizza's for free. Later on, he discovered where we lived by the voice that came over the phone. A lot of people like to eat at what we refer to as the golden arches, possibly not because it's great food or even because it's cheap food, but simply because it is what we call fast food. And if that's not enough, you don't have to get out of your vehicle and walk in, stand in line, and place an order. You simply stay in your vehicle and go through the drive-through service. You see, this hurry-up sickness that seems to have encapsulated our whole culture is an attempt to enable people to be able to do more and more in less and less time. We even thought with the development of the mechanized age that we now live in, that we would have more free time. But what we see in reality is that with all the mechanical devices available to us, we're able to do more and more in less and less. So what do we do? We do more and more. A few years ago, I was skiing in Whistler. And I didn't know the backcountry and the terrain very well, and I joined a guide, and there were about eight or nine of us who were skiing together so he could at least get us home. We got to this beautiful peak and you could look down into the bowls and the sun was shining and suddenly a guy's cell phone went off. And he said to the guide, could you please stop for a few moments? And we waited for 10 minutes while he was talking to his company back in Toronto. He was controlled by the mechanical devices that he thought would make his life easier. Some people even try to find themselves thinking about more than one thing at a time, or trying to do more than one thing at a time. Psychologists refer to this as polyphasic activity, or more commonly known to most of us, we refer to it as multitasking. In other words, we're trying to do more than one thing at a time, but that takes too long to say, so we use the term multitasking. I've seen this in the car. People are driving and eating, drinking a beverage, monitoring the radio, CD player, iPhone, iPad, iPod. I've seen men with electric shavers shaving. I've seen women driving with uh, a makeup kit putting on the stuff on your eyelashes, whatever that's called, Uh, lipstick the whole nine yards. And then one day I saw a guy driving and he had a book in the steering wheel. (laughs) People will talk on the phone. They make all kinds of gestures. And some are trying to do all of that at the same time. In some respects, our culture, the world in which we live in today, is far busier than the culture of Jesus' day. I know Jesus had a very busy life. And I know that the problem of hurry up and do more and do more would be a reality in his day as much as it is in our day. And Jesus, being aware of the busyness of life, had a principle in life that was a way of life. And the principle was he would regularly withdraw to be alone with the Father in places of solitude and silence. It was for him a place to be renewed. For him, it was a place just to slow things down so that he could begin to understand what is taking place in life. There's an interesting story which is found in the Gospel of Mark, and I'm going to be referring to this uh, throughout our message this morning. And in Mark chapter 1, we begin to discover first and foremost our calling in life, in this story, we begin to see Jesus engaging with four men. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think about my own life and wonder, what should I be doing with my life? Am I doing things that God has called me to do? What is life really all about? In fact, that was the way God got my attention when I was a young university student. And though I was raised in a church environment, I would be what would be classified as an environmental Christian. I was in the environment, but there was no reality. And when I left all of that behind and going on to do studies, I came to a question, what is my life really all about? And as I started to move down the corridors of time, it raised all kinds of issues for me. How will I use my life? So Jesus began his ministry, as recorded in Mark's gospel, by calling four young men to come and follow him. They were working for their fathers, and they were engaged in a fishing business. And Jesus said to Simon and Andrew and to James and John these words, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And so Jesus called them. He called them, and they followed him. And so Jesus used in that story a very common fishing term to describe their true calling in life. The people were to be the reason for their living. They were going to be focused on this one task, of speaking and inviting these people to become followers of Jesus. And in order to do that, Jesus would teach these four men, he would mentor them, and then they would know how to carry on this ministry as he empowered them. They would see that God's purpose in life was simply loving and calling and caring for people wherever they were. And I believe that that's the calling for each one of us, that we are going to be able to love and to care for people and call them to become followers of Jesus. And every Christian will begin to discover the joy and power of that new life that is found in Christ alone. But there are challenges There are challenges that these people faced. See, once we accept God's call on our life, it doesn't necessarily mean life is going to get easier or or better. In fact, in some instances, you will face more challenges than perhaps you've ever known before. So no sooner had these four men accepted the call, they discovered some of these realities that would be part of their ministry. So Jesus takes these four men, and the first thing they do in the gospel, we are told, is that they enter into a synagogue, a place of teaching. And Jesus begins to teach the people from the Scriptures. And as the people are listening, a murmur starts to move throughout the congregation. And they say, we have never heard such teaching like this before. Now they had heard other rabbis, they had heard other teachers teaching the Scriptures, but when Jesus taught, it came to life, and there was a dynamic and a power in what he was saying. And then in the midst of the service, a man who was demonized began to manifest this demonic spirit, and Jesus spoke and just quieted the spirit down. And the people said, well, not only have we never heard such teaching like this before, we have actually never seen such power demonstrated by anyone who was a rabbi. At the end of that service, they leave the synagogue, and Simon's house is nearby in the village. And they go to that house, and we are told that Simon's mother in law was not very well. And as they entered the house, Jesus went into the house, and he raised her from her sickbed, and she was so well that she was able to help prepare the evening meal. Now, if you've ever lived in a small village, you will know that word travels fast. They didn't have tweeters. They didn't have emails, They didn't have telephones. They just had the local hotline. And if you've lived in a small village, you know it is generally very effective. And we are told that by the time the meal was over and it was evening, most people from the village had gathered at Simon's house and Jesus began to minister to them as well. And we are told that he healed many and cast out many evil spirits. Now all that took place in one afternoon and an evening. So you might say that Jesus had a very busy day. There are all kinds of demands that were that were being placed upon him. And as you begin to look throughout the scriptures, you see over and over again that the needs of people are great and everyone everywhere is looking for some type of help. I would imagine even as we looked over this congregation this morning, all of us in one way or another appreciate and need help. We can't do everything by ourselves. And if we're not in need today, well, just wait till tomorrow. There will be soon new issues that arise. And having been engaged in ministry in the church now for about 30 years, I have seen this over and over and over again, that the needs of people are tremendous. And I think today, people need God's healing touch just as much as it was needed 2,000 years ago. And what does he do? He calls us to bring his healing presence into every facet of life. In fact, Jesus said, I invite you to partner With me. So, what are going to be our challenges? Our challenges will be learning to partner with God. In fact, Jesus said these words in John chapter 14 Truly I say to you, the one who believes in me will also do the work I am doing. In fact, you will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. So as Jesus was preparing and teaching and mentoring his disciples, it was for one thing alone, that they were going to continue doing the work that Jesus did while he was here on earth. And while Jesus was here on earth, he was limited by time and space. He would only be at one place at one time. But as he gave his spirit to the church, what he said is this, you are going to be my people and you are going to continue the work that I am doing so as we spread out around the globe, we continue to do the work of Jesus, and it is even greater than what he did because we are larger in number. Not greater in terms of being more spectacular, but greater in terms of ultimate impact because as the Spirit of Christ lives in us and as we are open to doing the work of ministry that Jesus has given to us, we are going to see people's lives touched in amazing ways. Remarkable ways. But we need to understand this that Jesus is our model of ministry. What does he do? He never condemns the afflicted, he never treats people as outcasts and rejects, and he never becomes weary of the demands that people place upon him. But rather, Jesus reaches out and he touches those who are considered to be the outcasts and the unclean. Those who have been banished or rejected, he invites them and brings them back into community. And he says to people who are weary, just come to me and you will find rest. As we think about that, I've often wondered, where in the world are we going to find resources to be able to do all of this. Because when you think about it, if Jesus says, I invite you to enter into ministry with me, and you will do greater things than I have been doing, and I want you to embrace the outcast, and I want you to give rest to the weary, it can potentially leave us breathless. Because there are so many needs, and we think, I have only so many resources And that includes how much time I can actually give. And I thought this was going to be about developing an unhurried life and getting rid of this hurry-up sickness. And it seems that there are more and more needs. How am I going to be able to embrace all of that? Well, as we read the story in Mark's Gospel, Jesus had called these four men. They had engaged in that ministry in that afternoon and evening. And then as you continue on in the gospel story, I think we find the clue. And the clue is found in verse 35 of Mark 1. And this is what we read. That very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and went, now notice this, to a deserted place in order to pray. Very early in the morning, Jesus went alone and found a place of solitude and of silence. And when you look at that, you begin to realize this wasn't a one-time deal. This was a pattern that Jesus developed over and over and over in his ministry. In fact, it became a practice or a spiritual discipline in his life. Because Jesus, in his full humanity... Became aware that he could not do the ministry the Father had given him to do in his own strength. He needed the strength of the Father in order to fulfill the ministry that he had been sent to do. And as you begin to read through the Gospels, you see this over and over again. Here's the pattern Jesus would minister to people and then he would withdraw, he would go to a lonely place. In Matthew uh, chapter 14, there's an interesting story that Jesus had been ministering to a large crowd. He'd been teaching to them, and he realizes that they are hungry. And he says to his disciples, is is there any food? And the disciples said, well, we checked, and all we could discover is this little boy has brought a couple of loaves of, uh, uh, rather five loaves of, of bread and a couple of little fish. And Jesus said, well, how many people are there? And the gospel writer tells us there were about 5,000 men. Now, that was not used in a generic sense of humankind. It meant 5,000 males. So if you think about it, there would be probably another 5,000 women and maybe 10,000 kids. So there was a crowd of about 20,000 people that had gathered to hear Jesus teach that day. And what does he do? He has the people sit down. He takes the small amount of food, he gives thanks to the Father, breaks it, and the disciples distribute it to the crowd. And it's interesting that the Gospel writer records how many baskets full of food were left over, just in case people were doubting this story. There were 12 full baskets of food left after this entire crowd had eaten. Then Jesus dismisses the crowd, and he tells the disciples, Get into a boat and go across the other side of the sea. Kind of like that sailboat, except not quite as uh, fancy. little boat. And they make their way across the sea. They're having a break. They're resting. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't get into the boat. He goes up onto the mountainside alone to pray. He doesn't want to be with the other 12. He needs that time alone to be with the Father. And over and over again... He would tell the disciples, this is what I want you to do. One time he sent them out two by two. And he said, you are to do three things. Preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out evil spirits. They went out and they came back energized. In all probability, they were experiencing an adrenal rush because things had gone so well. And they said to Jesus, let's do it again. And Jesus said, no. You need to come apart. That's why sometimes I give to my students this saying. Come apart before you come apart. There's a lot of people who are falling apart at the seams because we are caught up with this hurry-up sickness and we are trying to do more and more and more. So Jesus was saying to the disciples, and I think this is a principle that we need to grasp in our own life. If you are going to minister in the name of Jesus, you need to let God do in you what he will ultimately do through you. Because if you're just doing ministry in your own strength, with your own unique personality and your gifting, after a while, the well is going to run dry and you will become flatlined. What Jesus is saying. You must learn to eliminate hurriedness from our lives. doesn't mean you won't be busy. Jesus had much to do, but it was done in a manner that did not affect his ability to love and to care for people. And to safeguard that, he continually went away into places of silence and solitude. One of the things that I hear over and over again is this I'm so stressed out. A lot of people use the term, I'm burnt out. Now, burnout won't kill you, stress could. You could have a massive stroke or a heart attack. But with burnout, you just wish you were dead <laughs> because you're emotionally flatlined. And burnout happens when you engage with people all the time. Because you are continually giving out of yourself and your resources. So Jesus is saying, let God do in you what he will ultimately do through you. But if I'm not taking time to be alone and to be silent before God and letting God minister into my own heart and into my own life, I will be burnt out. You know, it's interesting. If you look at the Gospels, I've checked this several times, but nowhere do I discover where Jesus says, Oh man, I'm just so stressed out. I'm just burnt out. I just wish I could leave the planet. At the end of his life, he does say this. Father, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. You see, this is what we need to understand. That in um, our ministry, and in silence and solitude, Jesus was listening to the voice of the Father. We need to learn to be able to hear the voice of the Father because it's easy for us to become victims of other people's agenda. Lots of people have a plan for your life and mine. And sometimes, particularly if we are people pleasers, we can be led by all kinds of individuals. And one of the hardest things for some people to say is no. Now, how do I know when to say yes and when to say no? Well, you see, Jesus, when he was alone in that desert place early in the morning, the disciples eventually found him. And they said, Jesus, the crowd has gathered in the village. Let's go back there. And what does he say? No. I'm thinking, how does he know to say no? And the answer is this. In silence and solitude, he's hearing the voice of the Father. He said, that's not where we're going to go. We are going elsewhere because that's why the Father has sent me. Isn't that amazing? Not to be led by other people's agendas, but to be able to hear God speaking into our lives so that we are being faithful to God's calling in our life. But the second thing I noticed about this, uh, being alone in silence and solitude, is that Jesus always had compassion on other people. If we continually give ourselves out to others, you need to realize it's going to take time, it's going to take a lot of energy, and it's going to take a significant amount of effort. And if we're constantly giving out, we lose our ability to love. And one of the buzzwords today for a lot of people is, I'm suffering from compassion fatigue. I'm worn out or I'm burnt out. You see, Jesus never lost compassion because he developed that rhythm in his life. He would minister to people and then he would withdraw. So allow God to do in you what he will ultimately do through you. That's why the Apostle Paul, who knew all kinds of theology and was highly engaged in ministry, came to this place of saying, I'm not relying upon my educational background nor my position of power and prestige nor the people that I know, but he said this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. As we move away into solitude and silence, we're allowing God to minister to our own personal needs. And that happens as we are connected to Christ. So what is the promise? I love these words from the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah simply said, He gives strength to the weary and will increase power to the weak. And those, now notice this, who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. There are many voices calling for your attention. If you decide to take periods of silence and solitude, even regularly, at first it is going to be extremely difficult. They tell us that every day the average person carries on 1,200 conversations in their head, such as when's he going to be done? What are we having for lunch? Where are we going? What's next? All these voices, in a few moments, we're going to lead you into a brief period of silence. You might hear some of those voices. You're going to find it sometimes very hard to become focused. That's why it's called a spiritual practice. A friend of mine who uh, taught at the seminary, is now back in Hong Kong, told me that he has been practicing this discipline of learning to be silent, and today, he can travel on the subway system and be in total silence before God. Isn't that amazing? But that's taken about 15 years. So it doesn't happen overnight. But the promise is, as we wait upon the Lord, we will renew our strength. Moses was a man whose life, as we know, was divided into three segments of 40 years. The first 40 years, he was a prince of Egypt. And then, through circumstances of his own making... He had to flee for his life, and he spent the next 40 years on the backside of the desert tending to sheep. I don't think sheep are great conversationalists. They don't have a lot to engage you with. And so here he is the next 40 years in this desert place of being alone, and God doesn't immediately speak to him. But near the end of that 40-year period, he sees a bush that catches on fire. And he's attracted to it, not because this is a new experience. In all probability, that is called the Achaea bush. It often exudes little droplets of oil on the leaf. With the intensity of the sun, spontaneous combustion can occur. What's unique is this bush is on fire, but it doesn't become a pile of ashes. And so he walks over to this bush to see what's going on, and God speaks. It's in that place of silence. God speaks, and that voice of God was so profound and powerful, it would begin to change Moses' life for the next 40 years. And that's why he is the author of Psalm 46 that was read this morning. And part of that psalm says these words, Be still and know that I am God. The word to know means to experience. And one of the great problems in the Protestant church today around the globe is, we have lots of head knowledge, but are we experiencing that knowledge of God in our life? Moses says, you need to be still. Jesus says, as you move into places of solitude and silence, you will begin to experience God in a different way. So there's a wonderful song that we are going to explore in a few moments. And it's a very simple song, that comes from this psalm. But I've been intrigued in some ways by a community in France called Taze. And if you want to look this community up, just Google it. It's T-A-I-Z-E dot F-R. And this community has been in existence since prior to World War II. And during the summer, if you're under 25, you probably should not go, because they have at least 5,000 young people from all over the world every week come to this community. They live in very uh, basic dormitories. And then throughout the year, other people come. But they come to be still before God and to pray. And they sing these songs, which are all from Scripture. And there are three things about these songs. They're very simple, they're very short, and they're meant to be repeated. There was a 6th century church father named Isaac. And he said... When you sing, you pray twice. As I began to think about it, I realized, you know, when I pray, sometimes I just engage my intellectual thoughts. But do you ever notice when you sing, not only do you engage your mind, but also your emotions are touched. And that's what he said, when you sing, you pray twice. So I have found it very helpful in my own times of just becoming quiet is just to sing these prayers very simply. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to sing this song, Be Still and Know That I Am God. It's an older song, but it's a prayer. And um, we're going to sing it through a couple of times. And then at the end, we're just going to become totally silent and just listen to what God is saying in your heart. So listen to this song as it is played and then join me as we sing. Join me together. Be
1: still and know that all.
2: So, as you begin the journey in this coming week, maybe God is inviting you just to regularly come away and just to be still. For some of you, you might just start with five minutes a day. Find a quiet place where you will not be interrupted. As you come before God, say, God, I just give to you all the concerns and responsibilities that play in my mind. If necessary, write them down on a piece of paper and say, God, I'll set this aside and give it to you later. Maybe just singing one of these little songs can begin to quiet your spirit as you just sit and listen. Listen to your heart. Listen to the thoughts that you are experiencing in your mind. Maybe take a verse of Scripture and just read it slowly and read it again and reflect on it and then say, God, this is what I offer unto you. And then as you find you're able to do more, maybe taking longer periods, maybe even taking a day of just saying nothing, no words, just being still before God. So allow God to do in you what he will do through you. Let us pray together. God, you have called us to come apart and to enjoy your presence in our life. We acknowledge this morning that we are busy people. There are so many voices calling for our attention, and yet, above all, we want to hear your voice as you speak to us. Because your voice is the voice that brings life and hope. You are the one who fills us with compassion. You are the one who enables us to walk in your way. God, in the midst of the busyness of life, may we not put you on the margins, but may you be at the very center of all. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.